You are listening to the audio podcast of the weekly message preached at Central United Methodist Church in Arlington, Virginia. You're invited to worship with us in person on Saturdays at 4.30 p.m. or virtually through Zoom or Facebook on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. Visit us at www.cumcballston.org. There you can learn more about our congregation and how we worship God, serve others, and embrace all. The reading today is from Genesis, selected verses from chapter 6, 8, and 9. The Lord saw that humanity had become thoroughly evil on the earth, and that every idea their mind thought up was always completely evil. The Lord regretted making human beings on the earth, and he was heartbroken. So the Lord said, I will wipe off of the land the human race that I've created, from human beings to livestock to the crawling things to the birds in the skies, because I regret I ever made them. But as for Noah... The Lord approved of him. God said to Noah, The end has come for all creatures, since they have filled the earth with violence. I am now about to destroy them along with the earth. I am now bringing the floodwaters over over the earth to destroy everything under the sky that breathes. Everything on earth is about to take its last breath. God remembered Noah, all those alive, and all the animals with him in the ark. God sent a wind over the earth so that the waters receded. The springs of the deep sea and the skies closed up. The skies held back the rain. The waters receded gradually from the earth. After 150 days, the waters decreased, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day, the ark came to rest on the Ararat Mountains. The waters decreased gradually until the 10th month, and on the first day of the 10th month, the mountain peaks appeared. After 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. He sent out a raven, and it flew back and forth until the waters over the earth had dried up. Then he sent out a dove to see if the waters on all the fertile land had subsided, but the dove found no place to set its foot. It returned to him in the ark since water still covered the entire earth. Noah stretched out his hand, took it, and brought it back into the ark. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out from the ark again. The dove came back to him in the evening, grasping a torn olive leaf in its beak. Then Noah knew that the waters were subsiding from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent out the dove. But it didn't come back to him again. In Noah's 601st year, on the first day of the first month, the waters dried up from the earth. Noah removed the ark's hatch and saw that the surface of the fertile land had dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day, the earth was dry. God spoke to Noah, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you all the animals of every kind, birds, livestock, everything crawling on the ground so that they may populate the earth, be fertile, and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out of the ark with his sons, his wives, and his sons' wives. All the animals, all the livestock, all the birds, and everything crawling on the ground came out of the ark by their families. Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of the clean large animals and some of the clean birds and placed entirely burned offerings on the altar. The Lord, smelling the pleasing scent, and the Lord thought to himself, I will not curse the fertile land any more because of human beings. Since the ideas of the human mind are evil from their youth, I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I am now setting up my covenant with you, with your descendants, and with every living being with you, with the birds, with the large animals, and with all the animals of the earth, leading the ark with you. I will set up my covenant with you so that never again will all life be cut off by floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the symbol of the covenant that I am drawing up between me and you and every living thing with you on behalf of every future generation. 
I have placed my bow in the clouds. It will be a symbol of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember the covenant between me and you and every living being among all the creatures. Flood waters will never again destroy all creatures. The bow will be in the clouds, and upon seeing it, I will remember the enduring covenant between God and every living being of all the earth's creatures. God said to Noah, This is the symbol of the covenant that I have set up between me and all the creatures on earth. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. I'm always amused by the idea that some folks don't want to read the Bible because it's boring. We're only five chapters in from the beginning, and so far we've seen the entire rise and fall of humanity. There are ten generations following the introduction of the first people, and in that time, their children, Cain and Abel, showed us the power of extreme envy leading to murder. And the generations that followed allowed such corruption of the goodness of creation that we're told God regrets creating humans at all. This 10-generation genealogy from Adam to Noah may be symbolic. 10 represents completeness. So there's a way for the story to hint that maybe that time from creation to flood is completing something. It is time for one thing to end, for something new to begin. When Noah was born, his father said, This one will give us relief from our hard work, from the pain in our hands because of the fertile land that the Lord has cursed. It is Lamech hoping that his son will reverse the life of hardship that the people on earth experienced outside of that paradise of Eden. But I don't think he imagined building an ark while the earth floods was the way that his son Noah would bring about this relief. If you were following along in your Bible as Lane read the scriptures, you noticed she did not read Noah's full story in its entirety. It would take quite a while to do that because it spans four chapters. And if you read closely, you'll notice lots of repetition, and you'll even notice some contradiction within the telling of the same story. For example, if you look up the exact number of clean animals for sacrifice that Noah is supposed to bring with him, those numbers are different depending upon which verse you look at. That's because this telling is two different traditions of Noah woven together into a single story. Almost every Near Near Eastern civilization had some type of a flood story. And each of those civilizations used their telling of that story to make a different point about God and humanity. Long before the existence of the people of Israel, the ancient Near Eastern narrators had traditions of the flood where there were some people that survived. Some of those versions that we have still existing today are known as the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Babylonian Flood Epics. It's likely that the Hebrew people encountered these stories when they were in exile in Babylon. So let's remember the context of God's people. They're in a foreign land. There is no word from the Lord. They have no homeland on the horizon, and they have lost hope. And so rather than telling the stories that they heard from the Babylonians, 
the Hebrews in exile told the story of a flood that made declarations about what they believed in God, in Yahweh. To better understand how these ancient stories came to be in our sacred text that we read today, I'll share some of what the Reverend Brian McLaren wrote in this week's chapter of We Make the Road by Walking. He says, to properly understand this story and others like it, we need to remember that ancient cultures were oral cultures. Few people were literate, and oral storytelling was to them what reading books, using the internet, going to concerts, watching TV shows and movies are to us today. Ancient stories had a long life as oral compositions before they were ever written down. As an oral composition, a story could evolve over time. In a sense, writing them down ends their evolution. So for ancient people in oral cultures, a story was like a hypothesis. A good and helpful story, like a tested hypothesis, would be repeated and improved upon and enhanced from place to place and generation to generation. Less helpful stories would be forgotten, like a failed theory, or they may be adjusted and revised until they become more helpful. Sometimes, competing stories would stand side by side, awaiting a time when one would prevail, or they both would fail and a new story would arise with more explanatory power. In all of these ways, storytelling was like the scientific method, a way of seeking truth, a way of grappling with profound questions, a way of passing on hard-won insights. As our ancestors deepened their understanding, their stories changed, just as our scientific theories change today. In this light, we can reconsider the story of Noah, as an adaptation of an even older story from the Middle East. In one of those early versions, a gang of gods unleashed a catastrophic flood as a personal vendetta against some noisy people who kept the gods awake at night. Ancient Jewish storytellers would have found that story repulsive. So they adapted it to reveal more of Yahweh's true character replacing many vindictive gods who were irritable from lack of sleep with one creator who unleashes a flood to flush out human violence. That's certainly a step in the right direction, but the process doesn't need to end with the story of Noah. After all, God's violence doesn't solve anything in Noah's story, since Noah's family quickly starts cooking up more trouble. Couldn't we expect more of God? Doesn't this make us wonder, shouldn't God be better than that? To answer that question, we need to look ahead later in Genesis, in the story of Joseph. In this story, God responds to violence in a different way, not with more violence, but with kindness. This is another step in the right direction. As we progress through the biblical library, these stories interact with each other time and time again. Together, they reveal an ever fuller version of God. 
We come to know a God who consistently refuses to support a pyramid economy with just a few at top and the masses at the bottom. Generation after generation, people are telling stories that improve upon the previous stories and prepare the way for even better stories to emerge. This process leaps forward in the story of Jesus. He proclaims God not as a reactive avenger who sweeps away the innocent with the guilty, but as a forgiving, merciful, gracious parent who loves all creation with a perfect, holy, faithful, compassionate love. End quote. Reverend McLaren offers us these words and he challenges us to look at the examples in our lives and in our world today. Places where the powerful might be exploiting the vulnerable. Places where we can say humans can do better than that. Places where we can feel that God's justice can be at work. To be alive in God's story is to join with God in caring about the oppressed in caring about the needy and caring about the powerless and the vulnerable. To be alive in God's story is to believe that injustice is not sustainable and to begin to work with God for a better world. This question of being alive is a recurring theme throughout our journey this upcoming year. Throughout the global pandemic, so many people are simply trying to survive. Life day to day has been hard for so many, for many different reasons. It may be because illness has come close to your home or your family. It may be simply weariness from political strife and continuing natural disasters. It may be the economic uncertainty of the future. It may be climate change and all the other ways that our world is overwhelming. During these days when there is so much heaviness to hold, there is also holiness. Rabbi Julia Watts-Beltzler has been asking, how do we stay alive to the sweetness of the world while staying present to heartache. She suggests we do this by holding beauty gently without pushing aside grief. Life is restored through this both and. I believe that we can see this sentiment in the Noah narrative. We have witnessed God's grief at the brokenness of humanity. And then we have seen the sweetness in the righteousness that God finds in Noah and in the hopefulness of a restart for humanity. If only humanity 2.0 could follow in Noah's righteousness, it may be, at first glance, a cruel way to restart humanity. But we see time and time again that God offers a restart for humanity in many ways. Through wilderness wanderings, through the prophets, through the Babylonian exile, and through Jesus of Nazareth. Restarts are part of the story. In this particular restart, we witness creation returning almost to a primordial state. 
In the original creation story, we're told that there is no separation of land and water. There is no separation of the waters above in the sky and the waters below in the ocean. This is where the story of Noah takes us, back to the beginning where there was no separation. Once again, the mountains are covered with water, the wells from the deep spring up, and the water comes down from above, and once again, it is a new beginning. Noah and his family are saved so that humanity can have another chance at life. Our scripture tells us that God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah, all those alive, and all the animals with him in the ark. God sent a wind over the earth so that the waters receded. The term remember doesn't mean that God had forgotten them like where we forget our keys. To remember means to be faithful to a promise. So when God remembers Noah, we're witnessing God being faithful to the promise of seeing his family safely through the waters and returning them to dry land. Once again, God separates the waters from the land. After God has remembered Noah, we see God make a new promise, a covenant. God makes a very specific promise. It's not only for Noah. It is for all of creation. That extends from people to animals and from generation to generation. God has promised, never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God remains faithful to this covenant. And time and time again, with all of those other opportunities to restart humanity, God is faithful to this promise. Even though Noah was chosen because he was a righteous man, he didn't stay that way. After the flood, the people of earth reverted back to the same behavior that God had witnessed before. The nature of the human heart did not change, even when exposed to such judgment and grace. But what did change was God's heart. Before the flood, God resolved to wipe out what God had created. After the flood, God promised never again to allow a flood to destroy everyone. So God made a covenant. And then when people broke God's heart yet again, God chose to make another covenant, and another, and another, and another. As we go through scripture in this next coming year, we are going to see the covenants that he makes with Abraham, and later we see the final covenant made through Jesus Christ. This is the God we worship, the one who made a promise to Noah and kept it, A promise to Moses and kept it. A promise to Abraham. A promise to the people of Israel. And a promise to the world. When Jesus offered us a new covenant, poured out through his life, his death, and his resurrection. This is the God that we serve and worship. The God who remembers every promise made. Even though we people falter, even though we fail, God remembers the promise. 
and through the final covenant established by Jesus, that divine one who was fully human and fully divine, we are invited to participate in the goodness of God's creation. Humans alone are not capable of maintaining righteousness. No matter how much we may resolve to get it right this time, as we see with Noah, even a righteous man falls. But when we embrace God's promise to always be faithful to us through steadfast love, when we open our lives to follow the way of Christ, we will come alive in Christ. We can discover the abundant goodness of God alive in us and alive in this broken world. Even when we see the places where powerful people exploit the vulnerable, where sin and corruption and goodness can take a hold of a person's heart, we see that God is faithful to save us. And because of God's mighty act of salvation through Jesus Christ, we can look at the world and declare we are better than that. Knowing that God is faithful to us because of the covenant made with our ancestors. All we have to do is remember that we have to remember the covenant too. Thanks be to God for this never-ending grace. Amen.